We're going to start in, uh, in Exodus 20. And while you flip there or get there on your phones, I want to tell you a story. When I was in college, um, I had the honor of, of working for the president of the university. And I'll tell you that the four or five or however many years I was there, it was longer than I was supposed to be. Um, there, were two, <laughs> there were two great things that happened to me, two things that changed my life and two things that really, that really dramatically impacted me out of, out of everything. And the first is I met my beautiful wife and married her. And she was, besides my salvation, she is the greatest blessing that God has ever given me. And then number two, I was able to work for Dr. Khan. And I learned more in the time I spent just in that office, just listening about life and leadership and discipline and wisdom and ministry and, and everything more than I did anywhere else. Uh, and he was just a great man, a significantly great man. He was a very disciplined man. He ran five miles every morning, well into his 70s, come hell or high water. He ate very disciplined. He ate very healthy, basically the same food almost every morning and every day for lunch. Uh, he was incredibly wise and knowledgeable. Now, he could just see problems and solve them before anybody else even knew they were there. People would just bring him things and he could just start rattling off solutions. I mean, he was just a magnificent leader and just everything that, that when you think of just a great, godly, powerful man, like that, that is who he is. And, and he was known, and obviously in that university and in that town and, and in even some of the surrounding areas, just because of, of everything that he'd done in his, in his lifetime, he spent over 30 years and he took this very small, no-name Christian private school. And, and by the end of his tenure, it was uh, one of the top 50 private schools in the country. And, and obviously God gets all the glory, but he did all of it through this man and, and his leadership. And people just had a massive amount of respect for him. I mean, everywhere he went uh, in and around that area, I mean, he just was revered. He was just honored and rightfully so. He had earned that respect. Um, and there was a, um, a couple moments, a couple uh, opportunities to, to travel um, with that team and to, um, he served on different boards and different things with different organizations. And, and one of them is in Georgia. And, and part of this board, one of the board members was an owner of several of these big hotels. And so they would have, they would all stay for three days and then they would use one of the conference rooms to have this board meeting. And, and uh, the owner of the hotel told uh, Dr. Khan to come and park in front of the hotel, these two reserved spots directly in front the reserve for the ownership, but he told him to come do that. And so when we got there, we went in and we, we, that's where we parked. And very quickly, you ever meet people um, who love their job a hair too much? Um, this young, zealous, you know, late teens, early 20s, moron, I mean, child of God, came out uh, and just in a panic, in an uproar, and began to just kind of in my view, just deeply disrespect Dr. Khan and just talk to him just like trash and telling him he couldn't park here and listing out all the reasons why and just kind of a barrage of panic statements really, really quickly. And I, in the love of Christ, wanted to beat him to death with a rock. That was just what I want to do because I'd never seen anybody talk to Dr. Khan like this and it just enraged me. But I watched, I watched Dr. Khan and he just never said a word. He just li listened to the boy um, just a barrage of statements. And at the end of it, he just apologized 
and said, okay. Now, if it was me, I would have immediately been like, well, I'm about to text the guy who's gonna fire you in the next 30 seconds. So I hope you enjoyed it, buddy. But I, I would have handled it like that, very Christ-like. But Dr. Khan just said he apologized and he got back in the car and then we drove halfway down the street, a quarter mile away, parked. And when we came in um, later, the bonus end of the story was when we came in, he, Dr. Khan had never been late to a thing in his life. And he was late to this meeting because of the situation. He explained the situation and I got to watch uh, the manager scream at the boy, and it brought a lot of joy to my heart. Um, so, but when we got in the car, I, I very when we were moving to park, I very rarely spoke first. I just I just listened most of the time. And but when I got in the car, I just said that was like some kind of statement about like that. He's just very disrespectful, man. Like just acknowledging what happened. And Dr. Khan said no, he wasn't. And I was like, well, you've never been wrong before, but I feel like you're super wrong right now. And then he said something that the Lord reminded me of in the last week or two. He said, uh, he wasn't being disrespectful. He just doesn't know who I am. And, and what he meant by that and, and what the Lord kind of just used that over the last few weeks in my life as I'm thinking through this, everybody that knew Dr. Khan and was a part of the university and had been around him and had seen all that he had done for the university and for the town and, and for the surrounding areas and on every level and, and you know, thousands and thousands of people at this point, everyone that knew him knew the man he was and they respected him and they honored him for that. But this young boy didn't know who Dr. Khan was. He didn't know him at all. And so what I viewed as disrespectful Dr. Khan didn't view his disrespect because the boy was just doing his job. The boy didn't know Dr. Khan. He didn't know that he was someone special to the owner. He didn't know who he was. So he, he wasn't disrespecting him. He was just treating him as common. He was just treating him like every other person who was trying to take advantage of those two parking spots. And, and the point of the story is this. You will never be able to revere God until you know him, until you truly, genuinely know him. Not just believe in him, but know him through and through. The reality is, is the vast majority of people alive on the earth today, even believers, do not know the full glory and the full majesty of God. They believe, they genuinely believe in Christ and they genuinely believe that he died for their sins. And they genuinely believe in the creator. They genuinely believe in God, but believing in God and then knowing God on an intimate level and knowing the full knowledge of God and knowing who he is through and through are two very, very different things. And it is impossible to have reverence for a God you do not know. Because if you do not know God, the only option, like the boy's only option was to treat him as common, your only option is then to treat God as common. This is a hurdle that every single person and every single believer has to get over. 
In fact, I, I, I want to go ahead and tell you up front in today's message, there's, there's three things that we have to acknowledge and that we have to address that prevent us from being able to walk in the fear of the Lord, being able to walk in the reverence of God and be able to walk in that crazy, powerful intimacy with God. We have to jump over the hurdle of knowing him, and there's three things that prevent us from being able to know God, all of which are rooted in sin, okay? The, the, the heart of this is the sin does something to the human heart and the human mind. Sin kills the spirit of God in us. And so when we give our lives to Christ and we put our faith in Jesus and our spirits come back to life and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and we move on in our relationship with God, what we have to remember, what the Bible teaches us, is that though we are saved and our sins are atoned for and we have an open availability and access to a relationship with God and even God's spirit dwells in us uh, and we're truly genuinely saved, the consequences and the damage and the impact of sin still exists in our life. This is why God says our minds have to be renewed and we have to be transformed and conformed into the image of Christ. Because there, there are things that sin has done to our souls, there's things that sin has done to our bodies even, and there's things that sin has done to our minds, an impact that sin has had in our minds. And there's three big things that pop up from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And the first, as we talked about last week, the first thing that sin does, we see this in the Garden of Eden, we see this the second that Adam and Eve sin, the first thing that sin does is it causes an unhealthy fear of God. It causes an unhealthy fear of God. This is a hurdle that almost every believer has to get over at some point in their relationship with God because what you start with tends to be no fear, no reverence, or an unhealthy fear of God, an unholy fear of God. The second thing that sin does is it causes you to want to run from the presence of God. It creates a desire for you to be anywhere else except in the presence of God. And the third thing it does is it causes you to suppress the truth of God. Sin creates in us a desire to suppress the truth of God, meaning that there is something that sin does in our soul, in our, our minds, and our bodies that causes us to not want to know the full truth of God, to not want to know the full glory of God. This is what is taught to us in Romans 1 in great detail, that when sin entered into the world, the first and most dominant thing that sin did in the human heart and the human mind and in humanity was cause humanity to suppress the truth of God. There was a desire not just to not know God, but a desire to suppress the full glory, the full majesty, and the full truth of God. And what Romans 1 teaches us is that this suppression of the truth, this suppression of the knowledge of God, this suppression is what actually caused humanity to go even deeper into the fullness of wickedness, which eventually brought about the wrath of God. And these are three hurdles that every single believer will have to jump over in their relationship with God. Sin creates a desire for us to suppress the truth of God. Put simply, your nature and what will come natural to you is to not, not have a desire to know him, 
but to have a desire to not know him and to suppress the truth about him. This is something that every single believer has to deal with and every single believer has to jump over in their relationship with God. And I wanna show you this and how powerful uh, this is in our lives and how desperate we need to be to get past these things. I'm gonna go to Exodus 20. This is where we uh, ended last week and I'm gonna begin here again this week. Uh, ex uh, Exodus 20 um, is, is Moses' response uh, to the people's response to God coming down on Mount Sinai. Now, up to this point, this is three months, three months uh, after the people of Israel have been freed from Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and God comes down on the mountain. God allows his full majesty and his full glory to come down on the mountain. Now, uh, if they were to gaze upon the full light and energy and beauty and majesty of God, they would die where they sat. And so as God came down, he covered himself with the thick clouds of darkness and fire and smoke so that they could see the fullness of his greatness and his majesty and how wildly, unimaginably great he truly was while also shielding them uh, from the, the fullness of his holiness uh, because it would have literally killed them where they sat. So he, he, he did this to introduce himself to the people because up to this point, and this is actually a very important thing to acknowledge and to understand, up to this point, they only knew God through Moses. And the only things that they had experienced or the only things that they had seen was not God himself, but the works of God or the manifestations of God's power on the earth. They saw what God did through Moses. They saw the miracles that Moses uh, uh, performed. Uh, they saw the, the plagues come down on Egypt. Uh, they saw the Red Sea parted. Uh, they saw themselves walk across the Red Sea as on dry land. They saw God destroy Pharaoh uh, with the Red Sea coming back on them. They saw the provision even in the desert, the manna on the ground. Uh, they saw a lot of the works of God and a lot of the manifestations of God and a lot of the miracles of God and a lot of the power of God, but they had yet to see or hear or experience God himself. And so God wanted, he did everything that he did, all of the works and all of the power and all of the miracles, he did to literally, by his own account and his own word, draw the people to himself. God's desire was that he would be in the presence of his people and the people would be in his presence. And so on Mount Sinai, he's coming down to reveal to them himself. And there were two dramatically different responses from the people of Israel, and then from Moses. And we can learn crazy, powerful wisdom from looking at these two responses. And I wanna just intro it like this. When God comes down on the mountain, what you see are those three hurdles at work, what sin causes, an unhealthy fear of God, the desire to not be in his presence, to be anywhere else but in his presence, and then to suppress the truth of God. And so I'm gonna show you the fear again. We looked at this last week, but it's just important. I wanna start here, Exodus 20. As God comes down on the mountain, the people become terrified and they begin to run in an unhealthy fear and they had a desire to be nowhere near God or to know God. And this is what Moses said to them. Exodus 20, verse 20. Do not fear, for God has come to test you 
that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So he introduces these two fears, the unhealthy fear that causes you to run from the presence of God, and then that holy fear that causes you to run into the presence of God and away from sin and wickedness. And so God's point, God's showing up for the purposes of putting this holy fear in their hearts because he know this holy fear, holy reverence, holy respect, holy honor in the heart of a human being will cause them to run from wickedness, run from evil, run from foolishness, and run into his presence. And so part of the reason, one of the primary reasons that God introduced himself and he came down on Mount Sinai was to reveal his glory and his greatness and his majesty that the people of Israel would see how truly great and glorifying he is and that the fear of the Lord would rest in their heart, the reverence of God would rest in their heart, and that they would desire him and chase after him and obey him. But they had to jump over the hurdles that we're talking about. And so as, as God, well, let me say this. People ask me sometimes, they say, what's the difference in a uh, in the words of Paul, I don't mean this condescending, but in the words of Paul in the New Testament, what, what's the difference of an infant Christian or a baby Christian or a Christian that's still on milk versus a mature Christian who has grown in their faith, someone like Moses or like Elijah or like Paul? And if you go through and you study Genesis to Revelation, you study the scriptures and you study the Old Testament and New Testament and you look at this, you will see the pattern of an infant Christian, of a new Christian, of a baby Christian, or a Christian who, who's still on the milk, as Paul calls it, who, who's, still, who's still at the early stages of their relationship with Jesus. And time doesn't matter. You can be a Christian for 50 years and still be an infant in Christ. But the, the pattern is this. True believers that are still immature in their faith, they are obsessed with the works of God and the manifestations of God and the provision of God and the miracles of God. This is what they focus on. This is what they desire. And this is what they want. And this is what they chase. And everything about their Christianity is centered around that and what God can do for them. The mature Christian, the fully grown man and woman of God, like Moses, like Elijah, like Jesus, like Paul, like Peter, like John. They are not obsessed with the manifestations or the works of God. They are obsessed with God himself. The biggest difference between Moses and the people, what we're about to see, is they were obsessed with what God could do for them, but had no desire for God himself. They wanted the promises, but they did not have any desire for the promise maker. Moses could care less about the promises and about the promised land and about the manifestations of God and the miracles and the power. Moses wanted God and only God above and before all other things. And so I'm gonna look at this. This is their response. What happens is, is God comes down on the mountain and and. Moses goes up, he doesn't give them a timeline. He's not like, I'm gonna go up there for 40 days and I'll be back down. He goes up 
And I want you to see at the end of verse 21, in Exodus 20, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So while the people stood far away from God, Moses drew closer into the presence of God. And Moses was up there for days to weeks. And the people of Israel, I guess they all had ADD like I do, they began to get impatient. And so their response to Moses not coming back down off the mountain, now you have to, you have to get this. God's still present on the mountain. They can still see the clouds and the thick darkness and the fire and the full presence and the majesty of God. They know is up on that mountain. They heard the thunderous voice. They felt the ground shake. They know that God's up there. And they were terrified of it and they ran and stood far off away. And after days and weeks go by uh, and Moses doesn't come down, they go, they go to, to Aaron. This is Exodus 32. They go to Aaron and they reveal and expose their heart. And I want you to pay close attention. I want you to pay close attention uh, to this because it may seem like this is disconnected from us and, and that this is not relevant in our lives, but I want you to know what they're about to do in Exodus 32 we do all the time in our own way, and I'll show you that in just a minute. But this is what they do. In Exodus 32, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Verse five says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, I want, you to, I want to explain in detail what just happened. So the people of Israel, they know that the full glory, the majesty of God is up on the mountain. And they know that Moses left and went up, but he hasn't come back down. And they're growing impatient. And, and impatience is one thing. But what they did is they exposed their heart. And they came to Aaron, and if they were hungry after God, and they desired to know God, and they desired to worship God, and they desired to follow God, and they wanted God, what they would have done is they would have come to Aaron in their impatience, and they would have said, up, Aaron, you go up the mountain, speak to God, and let us know what he says because we are eager to move on in our journey and in our relationship with him and wherever it is that he takes us. But that's not what they did. They said, up Aaron, make us some gods that we're comfortable with, that we can visualize, that we can see, that we can touch, that makes sense to us. And then we'll attribute all of the works of God to these. And these will represent God for us. And then we will move on to the promised land in this way. The, the heart of what they were doing, I want to be really clear. They were not 
in their minds, though they were wrong and wicked and foolish, in their minds, they're not being done with God. They're being done with the fullness of God. They still want the works of God. They still want the provisions of God. They still want the promised land. But when they looked up on the mountain and they saw the full glory of God and the full majesty of God and they saw his true greatness, it was something that was above them. It was something that scared them. It was something that they weren't comfortable with. It was something that they, they didn't wanna have to deal with. They wanted a God that made sense to them. They wanted a God that fit into their box. They wanted a God that they were comfortable with. They wanted a God that, that looked like what they wanted it to look like and said what they wanted it to say. They wanted, they wanted God just without God. And they wanted the promises without the promise maker. And so they, they pieced together a God that they were comfortable with. And then they actually attributed this God, all of the promises and the provision and the manifestations that God had done to this little golden calf God that they made. Now you're sitting there and you're going, that sounds so dumb. How does that have anything to do with me? I would never do that. I'm a modern American man or woman. I live in this country and I know technology and I'm on Facebook and social media and why are we talking about golden calves? Well, let me explain something to you. This is the same exact thing that we do to God so often without ever realizing it. There are attributes about God that do not sit well with us. There are pieces of the truth of God that mess with our emotions, that get in the way of our passions. There are, there are full truths about the glory and the majesty of God that we struggle with. And what we tend to do is accept the things that we're comfortable with, reject the things that we're not, and think that we can move on like that in our relationship with God. Let me show you this in the New Testament. This is, this is 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. I want you to see this. I want you to see that this is not just an Old Testament issue, that this is a universal human issue, and that every believer has to deal with this and has to acknowledge that sin does this to them, and then they have to, by the power and faith in God, overcome this hurdle of us being afraid of God in an unhealthy way, not wanting to be in the presence of God, and suppressing the truth of God. Let me read this in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. Uh, Paul charges Timothy in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God, every piece of wisdom and knowledge and truth and commandment that exists in scripture. He says, you be prepared in season and out of season with that word to reprove, to rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? He says, for in verse three, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So he says, just like the people of Israel did right there, where they didn't want the, the uncontrollable, great, majestic God, they wanted something they were more comfortable with, so they made these little gods, but then they still wanted to call him Yahweh. They still wanted to call him God, and they still wanted God to fulfill his promises in their life, but they wanted to lower the image of God and lower the greatness of God into a box that they were comfortable with and that made them feel okay. 
And what Paul's saying all throughout the New Testament, really, but so clearly right here, is that in later times, in the New Covenant, and in the New Testament, and in the modern church era, we will do the same thing by looking at the truth of God and then picking and choosing what we wanna believe about God, picking and choosing what commandments we wanna believe about God, and then we reject all the rest. We still call this new thing church, we still call it Christianity, and we even still call this new little God we made Jesus, but that's not Jesus, that's not church, and that's not true Christianity. When you take pieces of the Bible and you take pieces of God and you strip it out and then you piece it back together together with something that you're comfortable with, and the way that we do that these days is by making sure we find preachers and teachers that have also torn out certain aspects of God. Uh, we, we then create this new movement, and we still meet in buildings, and we still have a cross outside, but we are no longer following Jesus. We're following the little God that we piece together with certain parts of the truth that we were comfortable with, and it's destroying us. It's destroying us. Well, what do you mean by that? What I mean by this is that everybody loves the Jesus that finds the woman caught in adultery and loves her and forgives her and doesn't condemn her and tells her to go on and not sin. We love that Jesus. There's nobody that doesn't love that Jesus. But there's a lot of people that aren't comfortable with the Jesus that sat outside the temple because he was zealous for the holiness of his father's presence sat outside the temple and made a whip, premeditated what he was gonna do, walks into the temple and begins to whip people and flip over tables and yell and scream at them and remove them and cleanse the temple so that God's house would remain holy. We don't really like that Jesus. And so we'll, we'll take the loving, forgiving, adultery Jesus. That's a good Jesus. We'll take that Jesus. We'll put it over here. But we're gonna rip out that Jesus that cleanses the temple and hits people with whips and we're gonna throw him over here because we don't like that. We love the Jesus that provides for our needs. Don't we? Hallelujah, amen. We love Jesus. Provides everything we need. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Everything will be added to us. That's a good Jesus. Let's tear that out and let's put, let's keep, that's a keeper. Let's keep that over here. But you know what I don't like? I don't like that Jesus that comes back at the end of the age, even though God gave us the gospel and even though God gave us opportunity after opportunity to be saved. I don't like the Jesus that comes back on a white horse and with a sword and kills all the evil people. I don't like that Jesus. So we're not gonna talk about that Jesus. In fact, we're gonna take that Jesus, we're gonna rip it out, we're gonna crumble it up, and we're gonna throw it over here. I don't like my Jesus to ride horses or to have swords or to have justice in his heart. I don't like that Jesus. You know what? I, I, love, I love the Jesus. I love the Jesus that loved on Peter, even in his foolishness. I love that Jesus. I love when Jesus like tickled Peter and, and they laughed together and they played and he's like, buddy, it's gonna be okay. I like that Jesus. I don't like the Jesus that looked Peter in the eye and called him Satan. I'm not a fan of that. That would hurt my feelings. That would really mess with my emotions. So I'm gonna keep the Jesus that plays and, and has fun with me and helps me catch fish, but I'm not gonna do the Jesus that looks at me in my sin and tells me that I'm resembling Satan more than himself. I'm not gonna deal with that accountability. I want sin in my life, but I don't want accountability. I want forgiveness of sin, but I don't want any justice. See, we, we do this all throughout Scripture. There's a viral video going on right now of this moron. And when I mean that, just I'm gonna be respectful. What I mean by that is moron. Uh, she, she stands on God's stage, on God's platform, and she's reading the Bible. And she intentionally skips an entire passage 
and then has the irreverent, foolish guts to stand there and say, we didn't read that because it's yikes and it doesn't sit well with us. And so we're gonna reject that and not read or address that. And I just want you to know that that's something that you need to skip over. Why don't you go ahead and just mark that out in your Bible because it's yikes and it hurts my emotions and it makes me not feel good and it doesn't justify the sinful lifestyle that I've chosen to live. So we're gonna reject that and move that on. That's the American church right now or the church that thought it was super cool to try to relate to the culture by taking the Bible and kicking it across their sanctuary last week. I don't know if you saw that, that went viral. What my point is, is that, that what the people of Israel did right there before that mountain, Paul said the latter church will do the exact same thing by having no desire to know the fullness of God, but instead by tearing pieces to the Jesus and the God that they like, putting it together, there's a woman that stood on another stage just this past week, and she basically said, you could read every part of the Bible. You can skip over James because there's nothing good in James because James goes for the throat. John, you can read John all day. John's about love. Man, he's a loving dude. James was more like a linebacker. But the thing is, you gotta understand, God raised up John in the same way he raised up James. And the truth in John is the same truth that's in James. You can't have John without James. You can't have the love without the justice. You can't have the forgiveness without the wrath. Our God is God, and he's holy, and he's righteous, and he's just. And if we can't come to terms with the fullness of his glory and have a desire to know him, then one of two things will happen. We will never be able to have reverence for him. We'll never be able to truly walk in the fear of the Lord. We'll never be able to love him. We'll never be able to fully serve him. We'll never be able to worship him in a way that is acceptable. Everything that God has called us to do, it is impossible to do it if you don't know him. And it is even more impossible to do it if you try to tear pieces of him that you like and make you comfortable and piece together your own. You've created an idol. You can call it Jesus all day long. You can call it God all day long. You can call it Yahweh all day long. And you can sit in pews all day long. But that is not Jesus because you have suppressed the truth of God. That was the people's response. Now I want to see Moses' response. God's response to the people when they did this. In love and mercy. Now it may not sound like that. But in love and mercy, God came to Moses and he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, because I'm faithful and I love you, I'm gonna go ahead and send the people to the promised land. And I'm gonna send an angel to go with them. And that angel is gonna provide everything they need. And when they get to the promised land, he's gonna drive out the enemies and he's gonna establish them because I keep my promises. But he said, Moses, I'm not gonna go with you. And he said, because if I go with you and these people keep disrespecting me and treating me irreverently and treating me like I'm common, my wrath is gonna break out against them. He said, and I'm gonna wind up killing all of them. And I'm gonna raise you up, Moses, and make you a new nation. And this is what Moses' response was. Because Moses did not care about the manifestations of God compared to God and did not care about the promises of God compared to God and did not care to the works of God compared to God himself. Moses cried out to God and said, please don't do that, please. Send your presence with us or don't send us at all. Moses said, I would rather be in this desert right here for the rest of my life with you and in your presence than in paradise without your presence. 
He said, God, I want you. Don't send us up from here, please. He begged God, don't send your presence away from us. I want you, I need you. We'll live right here and die right here if you're with us. Don't send us anywhere without your presence. Because of Moses' humble heart and true desire for God's presence in his life, God honored it. And he said, okay, I'll go with you. I won't remove my presence. Before I move on, I wanna read two scriptures to you. And you need to know this. This is first one, Psalm 89, seven. It says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. That's Psalm 89, seven. If you go and you read that, you'll realize really quickly the whole chapter, you'll realize that David is not referring to humans in this moment. He's referring to the counsel of God himself in heaven. The thing that you need to see, another pattern all throughout scripture is every person and being that truly knows God has a reverence for him. In fact, if you go through the gospels, you'll see the first person to bow their knee to Christ, the first person to confess he was the son of God, the first person to submit to the power of Jesus, and the first person to obey Jesus was a man who was demon-possessed. It was the demon who knew Jesus. And because the demon truly knew who Jesus was, the only response is full submission and full reverence. James even says the demons believe and they shudder. So what I need you to understand is that not just the human heart, but all beings, every being, every creature that truly knows God, the first thing that happens is they revere him and they walk in a healthy fear of him. I wanna read this to you in Leviticus 10.3. We'll get into this scripture later in this series, but I want you to see this because this is an eternal commandment. Leviticus 10.3, and Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke by saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. This is not a statement that was temporary. This is an eternal statement. That means that every single person and creature in the universe that was created by God, when they draw near to him, they must treat him as holy. They must treat him with reverence. They must treat him with respect because he's the most worthy being in the universe. But you'll never be able to do that if you don't know the fullness of God's glory. And so I want you to see Moses's response. It was the polar opposite. Moses, after he said, please send me your presence. Please don't take your presence from me. God said, yes. And then this is a conversation that took place. And I want you to see this in Exodus 33, 17 through 19. And the Lord said to Moses, in response to Moses begging for his presence, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So I want, you to, I want you to see this. God just looked at Moses and said, you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This means that Moses could ask God for anything that he wanted. He could ask him for those promises to be fulfilled. He could ask him for wisdom. He could ask him for, uh, for wealth, for riches, for power, for fame. He could ask him for anything he wanted. But I wanna show you what the heart of Moses was. This is what Moses said. 
Verse 18, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. What is God's glory? It's the fullness of who he is. It's the full truth. It's the full knowledge of who he is. Moses said, you, you gotta, now you, you gotta understand this. Moses already knew God in a deep way. Moses already had an intimate connection with God. God even said, I speak to prophets and visions and dreams in ways that need clarifying and interpretation, but I speak to Moses like he's my bro. I need you to hear. He says, I speak to Moses like it's face to face. I just tell Moses what's up and Moses speaks back to me. They already had a deeply intimate relationship and Moses had already lived and walked in the full presence of God. But Moses wasn't satisfied with a piece of God. He wanted all of God. Moses became obsessed with God and he came to realize there's nothing else in this world worth knowing and worth serving and worth loving and worth cherishing and worth chasing and worth seeking than you. So I am thankful for your presence and I'm thankful for the relationship that we have and I'm thankful for the intimacy and I'm thankful for everything you've done. But since I've found favor in your sight, God, I wanna see your full glory. I wanna know you to the deepest point that I can know you in this life. I wanna know the deepest and the fullest presence of your majesty and your glory. I want all the knowledge. I want all the truth. God, I want you. I want you. I want everything that you can give me, everything that, that you can show me. Whatever a human being can handle in this life outside of heaven, that's what I want, God. I want you to the fullest extent that you will give me yourself. And what does God say? Okay, I wanna show you this. Moses says, show me your glory. In verse 19, he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. In the next chapter, God does just this. In Exodus 34, verses five through seven, it says that the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God says, you wanna know me? You wanna know my full glory? You wanna know my full majesty? I wanna show it to you. This is the thing that you have to remember. God revealed himself to the people because God wanted them to know him. God wanted them to be in his presence. God wanted them to know the full glory, the full majesty. And so Moses was only one of like a million people who truly desired to know. He was able to jump over those hurdles that sin creates in all of our hearts. He was able to jump over that hurdle of being unhealthily afraid of him. He was able to jump over that hurdle that sin creates that causes us to wanna to be anywhere else but in the presence of God. And he was able to jump over that hurdle of suppressing the truth of God. And he said, God, I want the fullness of you. Whatever your truth is, whatever your knowledge is, whoever you are full and through, I want that. And God said, good, because I want to reveal myself to you. And so God gave him every aspect of his personality and God showed his full glory and his full majesty. Yes, God is loving and he is kind and he is faithful 
and he forgives the sins and the iniquities of the people. But if you don't come to him and you reject the gospel and you reject Jesus Christ and you reject the salvation that he's made available through the cross, through his death and through his resurrection, if you die rejecting God's salvation and you die in that guilt, he will without doubt separate you from him for all of eternity. God is both loving and kind and merciful and he is just. It wasn't just his love and mercy that saved you, it was his love, his mercy, and his justice that made salvation available. Moses didn't want to piece together a God he was comfortable with. Because a God you're comfortable with isn't worth wor worshiping, isn't worth living for, isn't worth dying for. A God you're comfortable with doesn't have the power, the wisdom to create this universe and to create you and to save you from your sins. Moses said, I want you. I want you. I want to know you. I want to know the fullness of you and I want your glory. Show me your glory. Show me your nature. Show me who you are. And the automatic response of Moses is always the automatic response when you gain another peace or another knowledge of God's glory. Exodus 34, verse eight. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So you see, the polar opposite of the people of Israel. They were not able to overcome those hurdles. The sin in their heart caused them to have an unhealthy fear of God and they weren't able to get over that. It caused them to desire to be anywhere else but in his presence. And it caused them a desire to suppress the full truth of God. But when Moses cried out to God to show him his glory, you see the opposite, all three. Moses had an incredibly healthy, reverent fear of God, had a deep respect and stood in awe of his glory. And Moses wanted to be in his presence and nowhere else. And Moses wanted the full knowledge of God. And what Moses received was a deeper, more intimate, more powerful relationship with God. And he bowed down and he worshiped him in a manner that God was worthy of. And so I wanna help us this morning. There is nobody in this room and nobody at home and nobody in scripture that didn't have to deal with those three hurdles. I have had to deal with those things. I have had to deal with unhealthy fear. I have had to deal with the desire to not be in the presence of God. I've had to deal with suppressing the truth of God. I've had to walk through that in my life. Moses had to walk through it. Paul had to walk through it. And you have to walk through it. And so I'm coming to you this morning to tell you, you are not alone in those struggles. You're not alone in that but I am telling you right here and right now, you'll still be held accountable for what you do with those opportunities. If you continue to not go into the presence of God and not desire to know God, then you will not have any revelation of the fullness of God. And if you try to piece apart your own version of Jesus, you will step into idol worship and whatever comes in your life, come of that will be there. 
But if you will humble yourself before God and go, God, I know that you are greater than I can imagine. And I know that your full glory is beyond me. But I want to know you. And so I'm asking you, Father, I'm asking you, teach me, show me, reveal this to me because I want to worship you in a manner that you're worthy of. I want to be intimate with you. I want to be in your presence and I don't want sin in my life. I want to know you on this level. That is where it begins for every single one of us. That desire, the genuine desire to look at God and say, I do want you the fullness of you, reveal it to me. And if that is genuine, I can promise you because I see it in scripture and I've seen it in my own life, God will begin to reveal more and more and more of himself to you. And the more that you get to know God, the more reverence will build up in your heart. The more out of love with this world you'll fall, the more holy you'll become and you'll begin to live a life of someone who's walking in the fear and the reverence of God. And you will have an intimacy with God that you could only dream of. And at the end of the day, this is what God wants. He wants an intimate, deep connection with you. Don't let sin steal that from your life. Amen.